Chapter 5 The Historical Argument I hope to prove to any candid mind that the historical argument is overwhelmingly against the use of instrumental music in the public worship of the Christian Church. It has already been shown that it was not employed under the Jewish dispensation in the tabernacle until it was about to give way to the temple or in the stated worship of the synagogue, and that, having been by divine direction limited to the ritual of the temple, it was, along with the other distinctive elements of that temporary institute, abolished at the inauguration of the Christian economy. It has also been evinced that the Christian Church, by an easy transition, carried over into the new dispensation the simple worship as well as the polity of the synagogue, modified by the conditions peculiar to that dispensation, that the employment of instrumental music in Christian worship was not one of those modifications, for such a modification would have had the effect of conforming the gospel church to the temple with the symbolical and typical rites, a conformity from which even the synagogue was free, and that, and that the apostles, as the divinely commissioned and inspired organizers of the New Testament church, so far from authorizing the use of instrumental music in its worship, excluded it. The Christian church, it is clear, was started without it. What has been the subsequent history of the case? In answering this question, references will be made to the practice of the Church and to the testimony of some of her leading theologians during the successive periods of her development. There is no evidence but the contrary to show that instrumental music was commonly introduced into the Church until the 13th century. The Church historians made no mention of it in their accounts of the worship of the early Church. Mosham says not a word about it. Neander makes the simple remark, Church psalmody also passed over from the synagogue into the Christian church. In his Histories, Volume 1, page 304. Dr. Schaff observes, He, Christ, sanctioned by his own practice and spiritualized the essential elements of the Jewish cultus. In his History of the Apostolic Church, page 345. And pages 1- and 121 in Volume 1 of his History of the Christian Church. They were historians and could not record a fact which did not exist. Bingham, deservedly held in high repute as a writer on Christian antiquities and as a member of the Anglican Church, certainly not prejudiced in favor of Puritan views, says in his works, Volume 3, page 137, I should here have put an end to this chapter but that some readers would be apt to reckon it an omission, that we have taken no notice of organs and bells among the utensils of the church. But the true reason is that there were no such things in use in the ancient churches for many ages. Music in churches is as ancient as the apostles, but instrumental music not so. In regard to the doctrine of the fathers upon the subject, I cannot do better than give an extract from a learned and able work of the Reverend James Pierce, who was a nonconformist and died in 1726. His work entitled, A Vindication of the Dissenters. I come now, says he, on part three, chapter three, to say somewhat of the antiquity of musical instruments, but that these were not used in the Christian church in the primitive times is attested by all the ancient writers with one consent. Hence, they figuratively explain all the places of the Old Testament which speak of musical instruments, as I might easily show by a thousand testimonies out of Clement of Alexandria, Basil, Ambrose, 
Jerome, Augustine, Chrysostom, and many others. Chrysostom talks more handsomely. As, as the Jews praise God with all kinds of instruments, so are we commanded to praise him with all the members of our bodies, our eyes, etc. And Clement of Alexandria talks much to the same purpose. Besides the ancients thought it unlawful to use those instruments in God's worship, thus the unknown author of a treatise among Justin Martyr's works. Question. If songs were invented by unbelievers with the design of deceiving and were appointed for those under the law because of the childishness of their minds, why do they who have received the perfect instructions of grace, which are most contrary to the aforesaid customs, nevertheless sing in the churches just as they did who were children under the law? Answer. Plain singing is not childish, but only the singing with lifeless organs, with dancing and cymbals, etc. Whence the use of such instruments and other things fit for children is laid aside, and plain singing only retained. Chrysostom seems to have been of the same mind, and to have thought the use of such instruments was rather allowed the Jews in consideration of their weakness than prescribed and commanded, but that he was mistaken and that musical instruments were not only allowed the Jews, as he thought, and Isidorus of Palestium, whose testimony I shall mention presently, but were prescribed by God, may appear from the text of Scripture I have before referred to. Clement thought, These things fitter for beasts than for men. And though Basil highly commends and stiffly defends the way of singing by turns, yet he thought musical instruments unprofitable and hurtful. He says thus, In such vain arts as the playing upon the harp or pipe or dancing, as soon as the action ceases, the work itself vanishes, so that really, according to the Apostle's expression, the end of these things is destruction. Isidore of Palestium, who lived since Basil, held music was allowed the Jews by God in a way of condensation to their childishness. If God, says he, bore with bloody sacrifices because of men's childishness at that time, why should you wonder he bore with the music of a harp and psaltery? From what has been said, it appears no musical instruments were used in the pure times of the church. With reference to the time when organs were first introduced into the use of the Roman Catholic Church, let us hear Bingham, in his works, volume 3, page 137. It is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the church since the time of Thomas Aquinas, around 1250 A.D., for he, in his summons, as these words, Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God withal, that she may not seem to Judaize. From which our learned Mr. Gregory, in a peculiar dissertation that he has upon the subject, concludes that there was no ecclesiastical use of organs in his time. And the same inference is made by Cajetan and Navari among the Romish writers. Mr. Wharton also has observed that Marinus Sanutus, who lived about the year 1290 A.D., was the first who brought the use of wind organs into churches, whence he was surnamed Torcellus, which is the name for an organ in the Italian tongue. And about this time, Durantus, in his Rationale, takes notice of them as received in the church, and he is the first author, as Mr. Gregory thinks, that so takes notice of them. The use of the instrument, indeed, is much more ancient but not in the church service, 
the not attending to which distinction is the thing that imposes upon many writers. Nor was it ever received into the Greek churches, there being no mention of an organ in all their liturgies, ancient or modern, if Mr. Gregory's judgment may be taken. But Durantus, however, contends for their antiquity, both in the Greek and Latin churches, and offers to prove it, but with ill success. First, from Julianus, Helen Carnan's a Greek writer, a year 510, whom he makes to say that organs were used in the church in his time, but he mistakes the sense of his author, who speaks not of his own times, but of the time of Job and the Jewish temple. For, commenting on these words of Job, chapter 30, verse 31, My harp is turned to mourning, and my organ into the voice of them that weep. He says, There was no prohibition to the use musical instruments or organs if it was done with piety, because they were used in the temple. By which it is plain he speaks of the Jewish temple in the singular, and not of Christian temples or churches in the plural, as Durantus mistakes them. Next, for the Latin church, he urges the common opinion which ascribes the invention of them to Pope Vitalian in the year 660, but his authorities for this are no better than Platina and the Pontifical, which are little to be regarded against clear evidences to the contrary. That which some urge out of Clemens Alexandrius, I shall not answer as Caesarius does, who, with Hospinian, and some wholly decrying the use of instrumental music in Christian churches, says it is an interpolation and corruption of that ancient author, but only observe that he speaks not of what was then in use in Christian churches, but of what might lawfully be used by any private Christians, if they were disposed to use it, which rather argues that instrumental music, the lute and harp of which he speaks, was not in use in the public churches. The same may be gathered from the words of St. Chrysostom, who says, It was only permitted to the Jews, as a sacrifice was, for the heaviness and grossness of their souls. God condescended to their weakness, because they were lately drawn from idols. But now, instead of organs, we may use our own bodies to praise him withal. Theodoret has many like expressions in his comments upon the Psalms and other places, so that there being no use of organs till the 12th or 13th century, I could not speak of them as utensils in the ancient churches. Let us pause a moment to notice the fact, supported by a mass of incontrovertible evidence, that the Christian church did not employ instrumental music in its public worship for 1,200 years after Christ. It proves what has been already shown from the New Testament scriptures that the apostolic church did not use it in the public services, and surely the church ought now to be conformed to the practice of the apostles and of the churches whose usages they modeled according to the inspired direction of the Holy Ghost. It deserves serious consideration, moreover, that notwithstanding the ever-accelerated drift towards corruption in worship, as well as in doctrine and government, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this corrupt practice until about the middle of the 13th century. This is the testimony of Aquinas, who has already been esteemed by that church as a theologian of the very first eminence, and who, of course, was perfectly acquainted with its usages. When the organ was introduced into its worship, it encountered strong opposition and made its way but slowly to general acceptance. These, assuredly, are facts that should profoundly impress Protestant churches. How can they adopt a practice which the Roman Church in the year 1200 had not admitted 
in the subsequent introductions of which was opposed by some of her best theologians. For example, Bellarmine, as we have already seen, condemns it as not belonging to the church perfected in the new dispensation, and Cardinal Cajetan says, It is to be observed the church did not use organs in Thomas' time. Whence, even to this day, the Church of Rome does not use them in the Pope's presence. And truly it will appear that musical instruments are not to be suffered in the ecclesiastical offices we meet together to perform for the sake of receiving eternal instruction from God. And so much rather are they to be excluded, because God's internal discipline exceeds all human disciplines, which rejected this kind of instruments. The great scholar Erasmus, who never formally withdrew from the communion of the Church of Rome, thus forcibly expresses himself. We have brought into our churches a certain operos and theatrical music, such a confused and disorderly chattering of some words as I hardly think was ever heard in any of the Grecian or Roman theaters. The church rings with the noise of trumpets, pipes, and dulcimers, and human voices strive to bear their part with them. Men run to church as to a theater to have their ears tickled, and for this end, organ makers are hired with great salaries in a company of boys who waste all their time in learning these whining tones. Ames translates this gibble-gabble. Pray now compute how many poor people in great extremity might be maintained by the salaries of those singers. In spite of this opposition, the organ during the 14th and 15th centuries steadily made its way toward universal triumph in the Romish church. Then came the Reformation, and the question arises, how did the Reformers deal with the instrumental music in the Church? Did they teach that the Reformation ought to embrace the expulsion of that kind of music from its services? I will not appeal to Luther. Eckhard, who was a German theologian and argued in favor of instrumental music against Calvin, is referred to as saying, Lutheris organa musica intera baleus insignifica referta. That is, Luther considers organs among the ensigns of Baal. But the German reformer expresses a different opinion in his commentary on Amos chapter 6, verse 5. Zwingli has already been quoted to show that the instrumental music was one of the shadows of the old law which has been realized in the gospel. He pronounces its employment in the present dispensation wicked privacity. There is no doubt in regard to his views on the subject which were adopted by the Swiss Reformed Churches. Calvin is very express in his condemnation of instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the Christian Church. Besides the testimonies which have already been adduced to prove that he regarded it as one of the types of the Old Testament which is fulfilled in the New, other passages from his writings may be added. In his commentary on the 33rd Psalm, he says, There is a distinction to be observed here, however, that we may not indiscriminately consider as applicable to ourselves everything which was formerly enjoined upon the Jews. I have no doubt that playing upon cymbals, touching the harp and viol, and all that kind of music, which is so frequently mentioned in the Psalms, was a part of the education, that is to say, the puerile instruction of the law. I speak of the stated service of the temple. For even now, if believers choose to cheer themselves with musical instruments, they should, I think, make it their object not to dissever their cheerfulness from the praises of God. But when they frequent their sacred assemblies, 
musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting up of lamps, and the restoration of other shadows of the law. The papists, therefore, have foolishly borrowed this, as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the Apostle is far more pleasing to him. Paul allows us to bless God in the public assembly of the saints only in a known tongue, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16. The voice of man, although not understood by the generality, assuredly excels all inanimate instruments of music, and yet we see what Paul determines concerning speaking in an unknown tongue. What shall we then say of chanting, which fills the ears with nothing but an empty sound? Does anyone object that music is very useful for awakening the minds of men and moving their hearts? I own it, but we should always take care that no corruption creep in, which might both defile the pure worship of God and involve men in superstition. Moreover, since the Holy Spirit expressly warns us of this danger by the mouth of Paul, to proceed beyond what we are there warranted by him is not only, I must say, unadvised zeal, but wicked and perverse obstinacy. On Psalm 150, verses 3 to 5, he says, I do not insist upon the words in the Hebrew signifying the musical instruments. Only let the reader remember that sundry different kinds are here mentioned, which were in use under the legal economy, etc. On verse 6, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. He remarks, As yet the psalmist has addressed himself in his exhortations to the people who were conversant with the ceremonies under the law, now he turns to men in general, etc. In his homily on 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1-9, to he delivers himself emphatically and solemnly upon the subject. In Popery there was a ridiculous and unsuitable imitation of the Jews. While they adorn their temples and value themselves as having made the worship of God more splendid and inviting, they employed organs and many other such ludicrous things by which the word and worship of God are exceedingly profaned, the people being much more attached to those rites than to the understanding of the divine word. We know, however, that where such understanding is not, there can be no edification, as the Apostle Paul teacheth. What, therefore, was in use under the law is by no means entitled to our practice under the gospel, and these things being not only superfluous but useless are to be abstained from, because pure and simple modulation is sufficient for the praise of God, if it is sung with the heart and with the mouth. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ has appeared, and by his advent has abolished these legal shadows. Instrumental music, we therefore maintain, was only tolerated on account of the times and the people, because they were as boys as the sacred scripture speaketh, whose condition requires these puerile rudiments. But in gospel times, we must not have recourse to these, unless we wish to destroy the evangelical perfection and to obscure the meridian light which we enjoy in Christ our Lord. In these views of his illustrious colleague Beza concurred, if, says he, the apostle justly prohibits the use of unknown tongues in the church, much less would he have tolerated these artificial musical performances which are addressed to the ear alone, and seldom strike the understanding even of the performers themselves. The French Protestant Church, which was organized mainly through the influence and counsels of Calvin, naturally adopted his views in regard to worship as well as doctrine and government. 
Consequently, as the Reformer did not oppose the use of a moderate and evangelical liturgy, that church following his lead employed one that was permissive, that is, not imposed by authority. One may wonder that Calvin, who unequivocally announced the great principle that whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden, did not see the application of that principle to liturgical services, at least did not make that application practically. It would be irrelevant to the design of this discussion to consider that question as one of fact. We know that the French Reformed Church acted in accordance with his views on that subject, and it may be said, in passing, that it has been a matter of observation that the use of a liturgy by the Huguenot immigrants to this country has been a snare, which has had influence in leading many of them to abandon the church of their fathers that was so definitely opposed to prelacy and identify themselves with a prolatic communion. Reading the case backward, we can see that whatever may have been the reasons which governed the reformer in declining to apply the mighty principle mentioned to a liturgy, they have not been sustained by events. And it is somewhat curious, at least it is a striking circumstance inviting attention to its causes, that the Scottish and American churches, which are now generally opposed to a liturgy, as Calvin was not, are more and more adopting instrumental music to which he was opposed. But the fact here emphasized is that the French Reformed Church, in its day of efficiency and glory, excluded instrumental music from its services, nor is the example a mean one. It was that of a great church, as illustrious an exponent of the principles of Presbyterianism, with the exception which has just been indicated, and its alliance with the state as has existed since the days of the apostles. These principles were not worn as a uniform on parade, but were maintained through blood and flame. A few extracts from Quick's valuable work, Sidonaticon in Gallia Reformata, will illuminate this point as with a lurid glare. Whilst, says he, in his epistle dedicatory, mystical Babylon, spiritual Sodom, and Egypt, where our Lord has been in his most precious truths and ordinances, and in his dearest saints and members for many ages successively crucified, did swim in the calm ocean of worldly riches and grandeur, in the Pacific seas of peculiar felicities and pleasures. Poor Zion, in that bloody kingdom of France, hath been in the storms and flames, hath passed from one fiery trial to another, from cauldrons of boiling oil into burning furnaces heated with fire seven times hotter than before. She hath been driven from populous cities and the pleasant habitations of men unto the cold snowy Lebanon, to the high craggy tops of Amana and Shenner, to the frightful dens of lions, and to the horrid mountains of dragons and leopards. Is this extravagant declamation? Let us glance at some of the facts. In the National Synod of Raquel in the year 1571, Mr. Beza, presiding in it, the Reform could count then above 2,150 churches, and in many of these above 10,000 members, and in most of these two ministers, in some they had five, as in the year 1561 there served the Church of Orleans, which at that time had 7,000 communicants, Anthony Charnarete, Lord of Maringu, Robert Mason, Lord de Fontes, Hugh Ceru, Nicholas Fallon, Lord of Valls, and Daniel Tosain, who afterwards died at Heidelberg in the Palatine. When the colloquy, or presbytery of Poesy, was held, they had in the one only province of Normandy 305 pastors of churches, and in the province of Provence, three score. 
And I remember the author of Le Cabinet du Roy de France, a book printed in the year 1581, and dedicated to Henry III, makes a computation of their martyrs to have been in a very few years at least 200,000 cut off for the gospel. And he makes up his account thus, Allow, saith he, but a hundred martyrs to every church, and you have the sum. Yet tis as clear as the sun at noonday that the sum is vastly more. For tis a truth incontestable that there have been cut off by the sword and massacres for religion from the church of Cain above 15,000 or 16,000, from the church of Laison, 5,000, from the church of Paris, 13,000, from the church of Reims, 12,000, from the church of Troyes, 12,000, from the church of Sens, 9,000, from the church of Orleans, 8,000, from the church of Angiers, 7,000, and from the church of Poitiers, 12,000 persons. Quick makes this remarkable statement which I cannot forbear quoting concerning the powerful influence exerted by the simple singing of psalms upon the French people at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Clement Marat, a courtier and a great wit, was advised by Mr. Vatabalus, Regius Professor of Hebrew Tongue in the University of Paris, to consecrate his muse under God, which counsel he embraced and translated fifty of David's psalms into French meter. Mr. Beza did the other hundred in all the scripture songs. Louis Gaudemel, another Asaph or Judasum, a most skillful master of music, set those sweet and melodious tunes unto which they were sung even unto this day. This holy ordinance charmed the ears, hearts, and affections of court and city, town and country. They were sung in the Louvre, as well as in the press de declares by ladies, princes, yea, and by Henry II himself. This one ordinance only contributed mightily to the downfall of popery and to the propagation of the gospel. It took so much with the genius of the nation that all ranks and degrees of men practice it in the temples and in their families. No gentleman professing the reformed religion would sit down at his table without praising God by singing. Yea, it was a special part of their morning and evening worship in their several houses to sing God's praises. The popish clergy raged and to prevent the growth and spreading of the gospel by it, that mischievous cardinal of Lorraine, another Elamus, the sorcerer, got the odes of Horace and the filthy obscene poems of Tibullus and Catullus to be turned into French and sung at the court. Ribaldry was his piety, and the means used by him to expel and banish the singing of divine psalms out of the profane court of France. Whatever may be the practice in recent times of the churches of Holland, the synods of the Reformed Dutch Church, soon after the Reformation, pronounced very decidedly against the use of instrumental music in public worship. The National Synod of Middleburg in 1581 declared against it, and the Synod of Holland and Zealand in 1594 adopted this strong resolution, that they would endeavor to obtain of the magistrate the laying aside of organs and the singing with them in the churches, even out of the time of worship, either before or after sermons. The Provincial Synod of Dort also invades severely against their use. Some testimonies are added from distinguished continental theologians. Perius, commenting on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 7, says, In the Christian church the mind must be incited to spiritual joy, not by pipes and trumpets and timbrels, with which God formerly indulged his ancient people on account of the hardness of their hearts, but by psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Instrumental music remarks the Paris 
in the religious worship of the Jews belonged to the ceremonial law, which is now abolished. It is evident that it is contrary to the precept and rule of Paul, who, in 1 Corinthians 14, wills that in the Christian assemblies everything should be done for edification, that others may understand and be reformed. So even that of speaking in unknown tongues should be banished from the church, much less should that jarring organic music which produces a gabbling of many voices be allowed, with its pipes and trumpets and whistles, making our churches resound, nay, bellow and roar. In some of the Reformed churches, these musical instruments are intained, but they are not played until the congregation is dismissed, all the parts of divine worship being finished, and they are then used for political, civil purpose, to gratify those who seek pleasure from sound and harmony. Molurus, on the 150th Psalm, observes, It is no wonder, therefore, that such a number of musical instruments should be so heaped together, but although they are part of the instruction of the law, yet they were not for that reason to be brought into Christian assemblies. For God willeth that, after the coming of Christ, his people should cultivate the hope of eternal life and the practice of true piety by very different and more simple means than these. Footnote 1. The three foregoing testimonies are extracted from the report of a committee to the Presbytery of Glasgow in 1808. Resume text. Gisbertus Boetius argues at length against the use of instrumental music in churches in his Ecclesiastical Polity, a work which is held in high estimation among Presbyterians. The argument is characterized by the great ability for which the author was noted, but it is too elaborate to be here cited. It might seem hopeless to get from the Church of England a testimony against the employment of instruments in worship. But when her first love was warned by the blessed influence of the Reformation from Popery, she spoke in no uncertain sounds on the subject. In her homily of the place and time of prayer, these notable words occur. God's vengeance hath been and is daily provoked, because much wicked people pass nothing to resort to the Church, either for that they are so sore blinded that they understand nothing of God or godliness, and care not with devilish example to offend their neighbors, or else, or else for that they see the church altogether scored of such gay-gazing sights, as their gross fantasies was greatly delighted with, because they see the false religion abandoned and the true restored, which seemeth an unsavory thing to their unsavory taste, as may appear by this that a woman said to her neighbor, Alas, gossip, what shall we now do at church? since all the saints are taken away, and since all the goodly sights we were wont to have are gone, since we cannot hear the like piping, singing, chanting, and playing upon the organs that we could before. But, dearly beloved, we ought greatly to rejoice and give God thanks that our churches are delivered out of all those things which displeased God so sore and filthily defiled his holy house in his place of prayer. The thirty-two godly and learned commissioners appointed by King Edward VI to reform ecclesiastical laws and observances submitted the following advice. In reading chapters and singing psalms, ministers and clergymen must think of this diligently, that God is not only to be praised by them, but that others are to be brought to perform the same worship by their counsel and example. Wherefore, let them pronounce their words distinctly, and let their singing be clear and easy, that everything may be understood by the auditors, so that tis our pleasure that the quavering aphoros music, which is called figured, should be wholly laid aside, since it often makes such a noise in the ears of the people that they cannot understand what is said. Certainly, says Ames, 
in answer to the taunts of Dr. Burgess, that these were neither distracted nor stupid men, whence their prejudice came. Let the rejoinder himself judge. In the English convocation held in the year 1562, in Queen Elizabeth's time, for settling the liturgy, the retaining of the custom of kneeling at the sacrament, of the cross in baptism, and of organs carried only by the casting vote. Hetherington's account of the matter is as follows, in his History of the Westminster Assembly, page 30, which has been reprinted by Stillwater's Revival Books. Hetherington says, In the beginning of the year 1562, a meeting of the convocation was held in which the subject of further reformation was vigorously discussed on both sides. Among, among the alterations proposed was this, that the use of organs be laid aside. When the vote came to be taken on these propositions, 43 voted for them and 35 against. But when the proxies were counted, the balance was turned, the final state of the vote being 58 for and 59 against. Thus it was determined by a single vote and that the proxy of an absent person who did not hear the reasoning that the prayer book should remain unimproved, that there should be no further reformation, that there should be no relief granted to those whose consciences felt aggrieved by the admixture of human invention in the worship of God. In 1564, during Queen Elizabeth's reign, considerable discussion was had touching the use of vestments in public worship. Bishop Horn wrote to Galter, at Zurich about the matter. He and Bollinger replied to him recommending moderation. Whereupon Sampson and Humphrey in February 1565 wrote to the Zurich divines giving a copious account of the grounds on which they founded their refusal to obey the orders of the Queen and Parliament. Bollinger answered them by again recommending moderation. Footnote 1. One is here reminded of Luther's words, too much discretion is displeasing to God. Resume text. This letter of Bollinger to Sampson and Humphrey was sent to Horn and Grindle, who published it. Upon this, Sampson and Humphrey wrote to Zurich complaining of the printing their letter, and carried their complaints much further than to the matter of the vestments. They complained of the music and organs, of making sponsors in baptism answer in the child's name, of the court of faculties, and the praying for dispensations. This is according to the author of Primitive Truth, citing Bishop Burnett's Reformation, in Volume 3, page 308 and 310. These facts are sufficient to show that the Church of England was at one time on the verge of eliminating instrumental music along with other relics of popery from her public services, and had she been thoroughly reformed in accordance with the wishes of her purest divines, she would have conformed her practice, in this matter, to that of the reformed churches on the continent but the taste and the will of an arbitrary female head of the church determined her usages to a, in a contrary direction. The history deserves to be pondered most seriously. What were the views of the English Puritans on this subject has already been indicated when the question was under consideration in regard to the position assumed concerning it by the Westminster Assembly of Divines. It is not necessary to exhibit their sentiments by further appeals to authority. To their almost unanimous opposition to instrumental music in the public worship of the church, as unscriptural and popish, there were some exceptions, among whom was the justly celebrated Richard Baxter, a great man, but neither a great Calvinist nor a great Presbyterian. Those who wished to see his arguments in favor of a temperate employment of instrumental music in church worship can find them in the fifth volume of his works, edited by Orme, page 499. Arguments 
about as weak as those by which he attempted to support the Grotian theory of the atonement, as they may, to some extent, be considered in the examination of the arguments in favor of instrumental music. They will not be noticed in this place. I cannot pass from this reference to the English Puritans without pausing to express the conviction that, whatever may have been some of their peculiar characteristics, and even these have been magnified and caricatured by opponents who are partly or wholly destitute of their religious earnestness, no purer exponents of the truth of God as set forth in the Holy Scriptures have existed on earth since the days of the Apostles, and the growing defection from the views they maintain touching the purity of worship, which now conspicuously marks the English-speaking non-prolatic churches, carries in it the ominous symptoms of apostasy from the Gospel. Some few yet stand firm against what is now called, in a painfully significant phrase, the downgrade tendencies of this age. The prominent among them is that imminent servant of Christ, a star in his right hand, the Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon, who not only proclaims with power the pure doctrines of God's word, but retains and upholds an apostolic simplicity of worship. The great congregation, which is blessed with the privilege of listening to his instructions, has no organ to assist them in singing their praises to their God and Savior. They find their vocal organs sufficient, their tongues and voices express the gratitude of their hearts. It is almost needless to cite the example of the Church of Scotland. She was, with the exception of an unholy alliance between the Church and the State, a baneful source of incalculable evils, a spring of woes unnumbered to the former, to the former, a glorious instance of a Church as completely reformed as could be expected in this present imperfect premillennial condition. Even the permissive liturgy of John Knox she soon threw off as a swathing band from her free limbs, and for centuries she knew nothing of instrumental music in her public services. Would that she now retain this primitive purity of worship. But within a half a century back, in consequence of the agitation persistently pursued by some who clamored for a more artistic celebration of worship, the established church relaxed its testimony and consented to make the question of instrumental music an open one. That is, the matter was left to the option of individual congregations. Meanwhile, the Free Church stood firm, and has so stood until recently. Dr. Begg, in his work on organs, could express his gratitude for the conservative attitude of his church on the subject, and Dr. Candlish deprecated the discussion of the question as fraught with peril. But they have fallen asleep, and the church of their love is now, by the action of her presbyteries, making it an open question. The floodgates are up, and the result is by no means uncertain. The experience of the American Presbyterian Church will be that of the Scottish. The Irish Presbyterian Church has for years seriously debated the question in her General Assembly. So far she has refused to make it an open one, but the pressure of a heavy minority, it may almost with certainty be expected, will prevail in breaking through the dikes of a scriptural conservatism. The fact, however, that to the present hour that noble church maintains its opposition to instrumental music contributes no unimportant element to the historic argument against its use. It is likely that the question has never been subjected to so thorough going an examination as it has met in the protracted discussions of her Supreme Court. She is now almost the last great witness for the simple singing of praise in public worship. Should the standard of her testimony go down, it must be left to a small seceded bodies or to individuals to continue the witness bearing 
and the contest for simplicity of worship from which the majority in the church have apostatized. The non-prelatic churches, independent and Presbyterian, began their development on the American continent without instrumental music. They followed the English Puritans and the Scottish Church, which had adopted the principles of the Calvinistic Reformed Church. How the organ came to be gradually introduced into them, it were bootless to inquire. They began right, but have more and more departed from the simple genius of Christian worship. On what grounds they have done this, it would be well for them to stop and inquire. For if there be any force in argument, their present position cannot be maintained. It is a clear departure from the practice of the Church, both early and reformed. The United Presbyterian Church has but recently given way. A respectable minority opposes the defection, but what the issue will be events do not yet furnish sufficient data to determine. The Associate Reformed Church has not yet receded from the pure principles and practices of their forefathers. May God grant them grace to continue in their maintenance. The time may ere long come when those who stand on these principles and refuse to yield to the demands of a latitudinarian age will be attracted by adherence to a common sentiment towards their formal union with each other. It may be made a question whether the retention of a pure gospel worship does not constitute a reason for the existence of a distinctive organization. It has thus been proved by an appeal to historical facts that the Church, although lapsing more and more into defection from the truth and into a corruption of apostolic practice, had no instrumental music for 1,200 years and that the Calvinistic Reformed Church ejected it from its services as, as an element of popery, even the Church of England having come very nigh to its extrusion from her worship. The historical argument therefore combines with the scriptural and the confessional to raise a solemn and powerful protest against its employment by the Presbyterian Church. It is a heresy in the sphere of worship. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 Arguments in favor of instrumental music considered in the preceding argument, the appeal has been taken to the scriptures and to the Presbyterian standards as interpreting them, and historical proofs of the practice of the Church have, in addition, been presented chiefly for the purpose of showing what was the usage of the apostles and of the churches which they organized. Any arguments produced in favor of instrumental music in the public worship of the Church must profess to be grounded in the same considerations. That is, they must assume to be derived from the same sources as those from which the foregoing proofs have been sought, or they are to be regarded as unworthy of answers. Those founded upon human taste or wisdom trifle with the gravity of the subject. They refer to a standard which can have no possible authority in a question which concerns the public worship of God. Such are the common arguments, for example, that instrumental music assists devotion, that it stimulates and exalts religious feeling, and that it imparts dignity, grace, and attractiveness to the services of the Church. They are all based upon expediency and are therefore irrelevant to the consideration of a question which can only be legitimately decided by the expressed authority of God. There is no middle ground between submission to God's revealed will and the worship dictated by the fancies of sinners. Only two sorts of argument, consequently, will now be examined. First, those which profess to be derived immediately from the scriptures. One, it is urged that God himself has sanctioned the use of instrumental music in public worship, and the scriptures are pleaded in proof of this assertion. Surely what God has approved must be right, cannot be condemned by man. 
The fallacy here consists in the affirmation that what God approved at a certain place, at a certain time, in a certain circumstances, he approves at all places, at all times, and in all circumstances. It is forgotten that there is a distinction between moral laws found in, in the eternal nature of God, which are immutable and positive enactments grounded in the special determinations of his will, which may be changed at his pleasure. He gave to Adam permission to eat of the tree of life in paradise. He revoked it when he fell. He commanded his people in the old dispensation to observe circumcision and the Passover. He has in the new changed that enactment and commands them to observe baptism and the Lord's Supper. He once commanded them to offer bloody sacrifice and to observe other special rites at the temple. He now commands them to refrain from what were at that time binding duties and even during the time when it was obligatory to offer sacrificial and typical worship at a certain place, the temple, he forbade them to present it at another place, the synagogue. And since the temple with its distinctive services has passed away, he forbids the employment of it now in any place. God approved circumcision, the Passover, the offering of sacrifice, meat offerings, drink offerings, ablutions, and the like, Therefore, he approves them at all times and approves them now. Such is the logic of the argument under consideration. Will the Christian now circumcise his children, eat the Passover, offer sacrifices, bloody and unbloody, and employ ablutions in his worship? Why not? Did not God once approve them? The reed pierces the hand that leans upon it. The argument proves too much and is in many respects confessed to be worthless. God did once approve instrumental music. Granted, but does that show that he approves it now? It was one of those positive enactments which he has been pleased to change. It may be replied that when he has willed the disuse of an ancient ordinance, he has substituted another in its place, baptism, for instance, in the room of circumcision, and the Lord's Supper in lieu of the Passover. But the same does not hold in regard to instrumental music. But, in the first place, this is not universally true. What has he substituted for sacrificial worship? In the second place, he has substituted simple singing in the place of singing with the accompaniment of instruments. In a word, God once approved the whole ritual of the temple. He disapproves of it now. And he who would introduce any part of it into the Christian church turns Jew and revolts from Christ to Moses. This is true of instrumental music as has been already proved. 2. Instrumental music is not condemned are prohibited in the New Testament scriptures. This position could be consistently taken only by a prelatist of the ritualist school who contends that the church is clothed with a discretionary power to decree rites and ceremonies. And we have seen that even the convocation of the English church that adopted the 39 articles did not incorporate into them such a principle. To those who cherish a respect for the doctrines of the Reformed Church of the English Puritans and of the Church of Scotland, the principle is of cardinal value, that whatsoever is not commanded, either explicitly or implicitly, in the New Testament scriptures is forbidden to the New Testament Church. It is enough to them that those scriptures are silent concerning any practice to secure its exclusion from the services of the Church. It has at the outset of this discussion been shown that under the Old Testament dispensation, a divine warrant was necessary to the introduction of any element into the public worship of God's house. Everything was shut out in respect to which it could be said that God commanded it not, and in those instances 
in which his silence was taken advantage of to inject into his worship what the will or wisdom of man dictated, his anger smoked against the invader of his prerogative. What proof is there that the same principle does not prevail in the new dispensation? The New Testament closes with the prohibitory statute enforced in the Old Testament scriptures against adding to or taking from the words of God. Nothing is left to the human discretion but those natural circumstances which condition the actions of all human societies. The scriptures are sufficient for all the wants of the church. Their prescriptions thoroughly furnish the man of God for all good works. He who advocates the infusion into the worship of the church of what God has not authorized takes the ground that the scriptures are not sufficient and that human wisdom is entitled to supplement its defects. He claims to be wiser than the head of the church himself. Instrumental music was prohibited by the absence of any warrant in the New Testament for its use. It is prohibited by the declaration that the temple worship, with all its peculiar appurtenances, is abolished. It is prohibited by the fact that it is not included in the inspired enumeration of the elements of public worship, and it is prohibited by the practice of the apostles, which must be deemed regulative of the customs of the church by all who revere the authority of inspiration. 3. Instrumental music is justified in the church on earth by the consideration that it is represented as employed in the church in heaven. Are we not to be heavenly minded? Whether the language of the apocalyptic seer is to be interpreted literally or not, whether harpers will harp on real harps in heaven or not, it is not material to the present purpose of de to determine. If it be admitted that instrumental music will be employed in heaven, this argument will not be helped. It would be invalid because it would prove too much. All that the glorified saints will experience in heaven cannot, from the nature of the case, be realized on earth. They will not need to confess and deplore continually recurring sins, but we are obliged to do so below. They will sing, but they will hardly chant in mournful strains. Show pity, Lord, O Lord, forgive, let a repenting rebel live. Are not thy mercies large and free? May not a sinner trust in thee? Should sudden vengeance seize at my breath, I must pronounce thee just in death. And if my soul were sent to hell, thy righteous law approves it well. Thus we sing, however, till our dying breath. One of the holiest ministers I ever knew, at ninety-three years of age, on the verge of his translation to glory, wrote that he was constrained to sing those penitential words. It is not likely that they wet the sacramental bread with the tears of penitence, but this we do while we obey the injunction of our Lord. Do this in remembrance of me. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but it would scarcely be legitimate for us to argue from their example to what our practice should be. If we did, the church on earth would be, as Owen says, in the condition of the kingdom of the Romans when it consisted only of men. It had like to have been the matter of a single generation. They cannot be conceived as beseeching sinners to be reconciled to God, but we, should we imitate them in this regard, would ill discharge our duty to the unconverted souls around us. But enough. It is plain that the argument proves too much, and is therefore nothing worth. It tries to prove from the heavenly world what we have seen some endeavoring to prove from the Jewish temple. Both arguments burst from their own plethora. If God had commanded us to do what is done in heaven, we might make the effort to obey whatever might be the success or failure attending it. But until such a 
command can be produced, we are not warranted to turn harpers and harp upon harps in the church on earth. 4. The use of instrumental music in the church is justified upon the scriptural principle that we ought to consecrate every talent we possess to the service of God. This argument is also futile because it proves too much. It would prove that the sculptor should install his statutes in the sanctuary, that the painter should hang his pictures upon its walls, that the mechanic should contribute the products of his skill as object lessons for the elucidation of gospel truths, and that the architect should, by massive piles, express the greatness of God, and by the multiplicity of their minute details, the manifoldness of his works. Avant, the argument is suited only to a papist. 5. Instrumental music is among the adiaphora, the things indifferent. The law of liberty entitles us to its use. The answer is easy. That law exempts us in things sacred from obedience to the commandments of men, and, so far as our individual consciences are concerned, from compliance with their scruples and crotches. But it cannot free us from the obligation to obey God. Now, God commanded the Jews to use instrumental music at the temple and did not command them to employ it in the tabernacle for most part of its existence or in the synagogue. They obeyed him in both respects. It is manifest that it was not a thing indifferent with them. Neither is it with Christians. The truth is that it is an abuse of language to rank among things indifferent any concomitment of public worship which becomes a part and parcel of it. On the contrary, it has in these remarks been shown that so far from being in that category, there is nothing about which the living God expresses so vehement a jealousy as the method in which men approach him in worship. Indifferent? Nadab and Abihu thought so, but they made a dreadful mistake. But if instrumental music is regarded as a thing indifferent, it is conceded that it is not necessary. It may or may not be used. It is not required by duty. Here, then, the law of charity comes in and, and challenges obedience. It is, of course, admitted that on the supposition the liberty of the individual is not bound so far as his views and his private acts are involved, but his practice in the presence of brethren whom he may deem weak is bound by the law of charity. Is not this the principle asserted by the inspired apostle in regard to the eating of meat offered to idols? He affirmed the liberty of the believer to eat of it, but the law of individual liberty was checked by the weaker conscience of his brother, to which the law of charity required that respect be shown. Paul maintained his perfect right to eat, but declared, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. His private liberty was, in the presence of a weak brother, not only restrained, but controlled by the higher law of love. If, therefore, a believer chooses to regale himself with the melody or harmony of instruments, he is not bound. But if instrumental music in public worship stumbles the conscience of brethren, regarded though they may be as entertaining groundless scruples about it, as confessedly it is not a matter of obligation, should not the law of charity lead its advocates to say, If instrumental music in public worship make our brethren to offend, we will not employ it while the world standeth, lest we make our brethren to offend. There are those who, when they hear it, pray that God will not hold them responsible for its use in his sanctuary. They are sincere, and if it be a thing indifferent, why should it not, for their sake, be discarded? 
The law of brotherly charity asks, why? That law certainly takes precedence of the liberty to gratify taste, and its infraction cannot be unattended with guilt. Number two, arguments derived from the confession of faith. One, it is not claimed, so far as I know, by the advocates of instrumental music that it is necessary to any performance at all of the act of singing praise, but it is claimed that it is necessary to the decent and orderly performance of that act. It is justified by an appeal to the last clause of the following sentence of the Confession of Faith, about which so much has been said in the course of the foregoing argument. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Chapter 1, Section 6 Among those general rules of the word cited in the proof text supporting this whole statement beginning there are some circumstances is the following that all things be done decently and in order. This, it is claimed, warrants the use of instrumental music. Among the all things to be done decently and in order it is the singing of praise and instrumental music is necessary to this thing being done decently and in order. First, it must be observed that the last clause of the statement of the confession, the clause which is used in this argument for instrumental music, has reference to the circumstances mentioned in that statement. It is these circumstances, and not something else different from them, in regard to which the general rules of the word, including this one, that all things be done decently and in order, are always to be observed. Now it has already been clearly pointed out that these circumstances are circumstances common to human actions and societies. It is precisely such circumstances concerning which the statement of the confession enjoins that they be ordered according to the general rules of the word. It is precisely such circumstances, consequently, that that statement requires to be done decently and in order. The question before us, then, is this. Is instrumental music one of those circumstances? It has, in a previous part of this discussion, by a somewhat painstaking argument, been proved that it cannot be one of them. Those circumstances have been shown to be undistinctive conditions upon which the actions of all societies are performed. They are common to them all. But instrumental music is not common to the actions of all societies. It cannot, therefore, be one of the circumstances indicated by the statement in the Confession. The conclusion is irresistible that, so far as that statement is concerned, it is not necessary to the decent and orderly performance of the singing of praise as a part of church worship. This particular argument in favor of instrumental music will be still further considered as the discussion draws towards its close. Secondly, the argument takes on the aspect of preposterous arrogance as containing an indictment of the true Church of God in almost all the centuries of the Christian era for indecent and disorderly singing of praise in its public worship, not to speak of the Church in the old dispensation in its ordinary Sabbath day services. It would be folly to test the question of the decent and orderly or the indecorous and disorderly singing of praise by a temporary standard especially one erected in a modern and corrupt condition of the nominal church. 
shall the standard by which the practice of the Christian church, leaving out the account of the Jewish, for twelve centuries is to be judged be one in which the Church of Rome slowly and reluctantly acquiesced as late as the middle or the close of the thirteenth century? And by this standard will we convict of indecorous and disorderly worship the Reformed Churches of Europe, the Swiss, the French, and the Dutch, the Churches of Scotland for centuries, the English Puritans, and the Presbyterian Church of Ireland? Has it been left to the Church in these latter days to discover the only decorous and orderly way in which God's praises shall be sung? The supposition is intolerable. The same considerations avail against the plea that instrumental music is a help in the singing of praise. If the Church of Christ has not felt the need for this help during the greater part of its existence, it requires no argument to show that she can do without it now. It may be admitted that it is a help to such rendering of singing as is demanded by ears cultivated for the enjoyment of Italian operas and the like artistic performances. But that is quite a different thing from admitting that it is a help to the singing of praise by humble and penitent sinners, by the afflicted people of God passing as cross-bearing pilgrims through a world to which they are crucified, and which is crucified to them. The discussion is gratuitous and needless. It is sufficient to say that that cannot be a true help to worship which the being to be worshipped does not himself approve. 2. It is contended that instrumental music is to be ranked among the circumstances allowed by the confession of faith, that this is proved by the fact that it is on the same foot as other circumstances about which there is no dispute, such as houses of worship, reading sermons, the length of sermons, of prayers and of singing, bells, tuning forks and pitch pipes, tune books and the like. One would be entitled to meet this argument upon the general ground already so often and earnestly maintained, that all the circumstances remitted by the confession to the discretion, the natural judgment of the Church, are common to human actions and societies, and are such as belong to the natural sphere in which the acts of all societies are performed, and, therefore, cannot be distinctly spiritual or even ecclesiastical. As instrumental music, used in professedly spiritual and actually ecclesiastical worship cannot possibly be assigned to that category, it is for that patent reason ruled out by the very terms of the confession statement. This ground I hold to be impregnable, but inasmuch as it is a fact that certain minds do consider instrumental music as savable to the church for the reason that it may be viewed as standing on the same foot with the circumstances which have been mentioned, I will endeavor to meet their difficulties, albeit at the conscious expense of strict logical consistency, by following this argument into its minute details, and I pray that the Spirit of God may bestow his guidance in this last step of the discussion. First, it has been argued that the use of instrumental music is a circumstance of the same kind with the building of a house of worship and the selection of its arrangements, that it is not an absolute necessary condition of the Church's act that it should hold its meetings in edifices, they might be held as often, in fact, been done in the open air. To this, the obvious reply is that this circumstance is one common to the acts of all societies. They must meet somewhere, and it is, of course, competent to all of them to determine whether they shall be subjected to the inconveniences of open-air assemblages or avail themselves of the advantages afforded by buildings. 
so of the arrangements and furniture of the edifices in which they convene. Every society, even an infidel society, has this circumstance conditioning its meetings and acts, either as necessary to any performance of them or as necessary to their decorous and orderly discharge. But instrumental music is not such a circumstance. It is not common to human actions and societies. This destroys the alleged analogy, and consequently the argument founded upon it fails. Secondly, the same disproof is applicable to the assumed analogy between the alleged circumstance of instrumental music and that of reading sermons. It is urged that a sermon must be delivered in one of two ways, either with or without reading, and there is discretion left to the church to elect between them. If she thinks reading the better way, she is at liberty to employ it, so with the choice of instrumental music as a mode in which praise shall be sung. There might be, as there has been, some discussion in regard to the legitimacy of reading sermons, but that question aside, and the argument being considered on its own ground, it is sufficient to reply that the analogy asserted does not obtain. The delivery of discourses, speeches, reports, and resolutions is an act common to all human societies. Now, it is competent to all societies to say whether they shall be simply spoken or read, whether the, the delivery shall be extemporaneous or from manuscript. They can, each for itself, determine the circumstance of the mode in which an act common to all shall be performed. But the singing of praise in the worship of God is not an act common to all societies. It is therefore not one in regard to which the confession grants the liberty to the Church of fixing the circumstance of the mode in which it shall be done. Footnote 1. In addition to this, let it be noticed that in preaching to men worship is not directly offered to God. In singing praise it is, at least in great part. Resume text. Thirdly, the same line of argument, it is contended, holds good with reference to the discretionary power of the Church to order the circumstances of the length of sermons, of prayers, and of singing. But, it is replied, all societies must of necessity fix the time allotted to their several exercises or their meetings would be failures. Nature itself dictates this. The Church, therefore, has the natural right to order this circumstance in connection with all her services. But the question of determining the length of an exercise is a very different one from that of introducing the exercise at all. There is no analogy between the determination of the time to be allowed to all acts and the determination of the legitimacy of some special act. The adjustment of the length of its exercises is a circumstance common to all societies. The employment of instrumental music as a concomitant of worship is a circumstance peculiar to the Church as a distinctive society. The analogy in every respect breaks down. Fourthly, if the Church has bells, it is asked, why may it not have organs? They are both instruments of sound which serve an ecclesiastical purpose. The answer is so obvious that one feels almost ashamed to give it. The bell is not directly connected with worship. The organ is. The bell stops ringing before the worship begins. The organ accompanies the worship itself. There is not the least likeness between them, so far as this question is concerned. A bell simply marks the time for assembling. So does a clock. And we may as well institute a comparison between the hands of the clock at a certain hour and instrumental music in worshipping after that hour, as between the sound of the bell and it. 
The question is in regard to a concomitant of worship, not as to something that precedes it and gives way to it. Fifthly, it is by some gravely contended that if tuning forks and pitch pipes may be used, so may organs. The same answer as was returned to the immediately foregoing argument is pertinent here. Did those who submit this argument ever notice the use of, made of a tuning fork or a pitch pipe by a leader of singing? It is struck or sounded in a way to be heard by the leader himself, and when by means of it he has got the pitch of the tune to be sung, it is put into his pocket, where it snugly and silently rests while the singing proceeds. It no more accompanies the worship than does a bell. Like it, it stops sounding before the act of worship begins. What analogy is there between it and the instrument that accompanies every note of the singing by a corresponding note of its own? Assign to the organ the same office as the humbler tuning fork or pitch pipe, namely, merely to give the leader of the simple singing the pitch of the tunes, and who would object to it? The question of organs would be as quiet as they would be. One toot before the singing, and then they would be what they ought to be during the public singing of praise, as silent as the grave. One cannot help wondering that the admirers of this majestic instrument would employ a comparison which reduces it to a pitch so low. Sixthly, there is only one other argument of this minute class which will be considered. It is one which I have known some brethren to maintain as men do a last redoubt. It is argued that instrumental music is just as fairly entitled to rank among the circumstances indicated by the confession of faith as is a tune-book. Does a tune-book assist the singing of praise? So does an organ. If the church has discretion in employing one kind of assistance to singing, why, why not? not another? Has it not occurred to the minds of those who insist so strenuously upon this view that they may be using a tune-book to accomplish an office to which it may be inadequate when they wield it to knock down arguments derived from the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures from the old dispensation and the new, from the practice of the Jewish synagogue, of the apostles, of the whole church for 1,200 years, and of the Calvinistic Reformed Church for centuries? Does it not occur to them, also, that there may be a flaw in the statement of their argument? Expanded, it is this. Whatever assists the singing of praise is a legitimate circumstance. The tune book and the organ alike assist, etc. Therefore, they are alike the legitimate circumstances. The true statement would be, whatever is necessary to the singing of praise is a legitimate circumstance. The tune book and the organ are alike so necessary. Therefore, they are alike legitimate circumstances. It behooves them to show that the organ is necessary to the singing of praise. It is not enough to say that it assists it. They cannot prove its necessity. Praise has been and is sung without the organ. But it also behooves me to show that the tune book is necessary to the singing of praise, that it is a condition without which it could not be done. If this can be evinced, as the organ is not necessary to singing, it does not, as is assumed, stand on the same foot with the tune book, and the argument is unfounded. It will be granted that a tune is necessary to the modulated singing, that is, to singing which is not merely the prolongation of a single note, and that could not be denominated singing. But the tune book gives the tune. The tune is necessary to singing. The tune book is necessary to the tune. Therefore, the tune book is necessary to singing. Need this simple argument be pressed? 
once the tune, if not from the tune book. It is improvised by the leading singer. Suppose that it may be, and he would be the only singer. It would be impossible for others to unite with him. It may be replied that the organ also gives the tune. This is a mistake. The organ is as much indebted to the tune book for the tune as is a leading singer. If the organist should improvise the tune, where would this be the singing? It will hardly be contended that a solo on the organ would be the singing of the congregation or that the organ sings at all. It may still be said that the tune book is not necessary to singing, since it is a fact that singing is often done without it. This is mistaken also. The tune book may be absent as a book, but the tune it contains is present in the mind of the leading singer, who remembers what he got from it. It is a necessity to him, whether literally absent or present. He cannot sing without the tune, and the tune is in the tune book. Finally, the mighty contest may be yet maintained on the ground that some leading singers do not know the musical notes and, therefore, cannot depend on the tune book for the tune. True, there are some who are ignorant of the notes, but all the same they depend on the tune book, not immediately, but immediately and really. For the tune is learned, in the first instance, only from someone who does know the notes and got the tune from the book. The tune book is the first cause of the tune and is necessary to its, its existence. Of course, tunes are learned by the ear. Most members of a congregation so learn them. But these persons acquire them from the leading singer, and he receives them from the tune book. So that, look at the matter as we may, the tune book is necessary to the singing of praise. It conditions its performance. If, now, it be objected that the tune book is a circumstance not common to human actions and societies, and is equally with instrumental music, according to this argument, excluded from the discretionary control of the church, I answer, that is true. It is circumstances in the natural sphere, those which attend actions as actions, and not this or that particular action of a distinctive society that fall within the discretion of the church. Consequently, both of these circumstances, the tune book and instrumental music, fall without that discretion. They both condition the performance of an act peculiar to the church, but the difference between them is this. One is necessary to the performance of a commanded duty, namely the singing of praise, and the other is not. The singing of praise is undoubtedly a commanded duty, and it follows that what is a necessary condition of its discharge comes also under the scope of command. It is, therefore, not discretionary with the church to employ it. It is obligatory. It must be employed or the commanded duty fails to be done. It is not so with instrumental music. It is not a condition necessary to the commanded duty of singing praise. Neither is it a natural circumstance conditioning the acts of all societies. It is, therefore, neither obligatory upon or nor discretionary with the church to use it. It is consequently excluded. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 Concluding Remarks The foregoing argument has proceeded principally by two steps. The first is, whatsoever in connection with the public worship of the church is not commanded by Christ, either expressly or by good and necessary consequence, in his word, is forbidden. The second is, 
instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the church is not so commanded by Christ. The conclusion is, instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the church is forbidden. If the premises are materially true, and if they are logically connected with the argument, the conclusion is irresistible. The first premise, which is denied by Romanists, Prelatists, and Latitudinarians, has been established by proofs derived from the scriptures. The position that the church has power to decree rites connected with the worship of God's house, rites not prescribed in the divine word, is confessedly a doctrine of men, making a substantive addition to the only sufficient, complete, and infallible rule of faith and practice. Of those who contend for this principle, the Romanist alone is consistent. It is plain that such a discretionary power in the church could only be grounded in her possession of continued inspiration. If she have that gift, her authority is equal to, to that of the inspired organizers and instructors of the church themselves. She can supplement the scriptures. But the claim to inspiration can only be substantiated by the working of miracles. This Rome admits and meets the requirement by appealing to her miracles. These professed miracles are, however, of such a character as not to be placed above impeachment. They may be accounted for upon natural principles. They never rise to the point of creative power, nor of the power that restores life to the dead. The Protestant Church, therefore, rejects the claim of Rome to inspiration and infallibility, and is consequently bound to deny the authority of that Church, or any other, to decree rites and ceremonies not prescribed in the Word of God. For a Church, theoretically, to make such a claim is to confess itself to that extent apostate. It is in flagrant rebellion against the sole authority of Christ as expressed in His Word. The past history of the Church is a comment upon the correctness of this indictment. The second premise, namely, that instrumental music is in connection with the public worship of the Church, not commanded by Christ, either expressly or by good and necessary consequence in his word, is acknowledged to be true by all consistent Presbyterians. One would, therefore, argue that they would exclude it from the public worship of the Church, and so, indeed, they have done until a comparatively recent period. On that very ground, they have justly refused to employ it. How is the amazing change to its employment to be accounted for? How is it that in Scotland such a revolution against the historic position of the Presbyterian Church is now in full progress? How is it that in the conservative Scotch-Irish Church so formidable an effort is making to upset its testimony and its practice in relation to this subject? How is it that such men as Breckenridge and Thornwell in the American Presbyterian Church were hardly cold in their graves before in the very places where they had thundered forth their contentions for a, the mighty principle which demands a divine warrant for every element of doctrine, government, and worship, and where they had, in obedience to that principle, utterly refused to admit instrumental music into the church, the organ peeled forth its triumphs over their views. How is this state of things to be explained? There is a class who look with indifference upon the question, who are willing that human opinions shall prevail, and human tastes shall be gratified in the arrangements of public worship. It is needless to say that, as they disregard alike the teachings of God's word and the testimonies of their forefathers, they are countenancing a course which must, if not interrupted by the extraordinary interposition of divine providence or divine grace, land the church in open apostasy from the gospel. There is a second class who maintain the prelatic theory, 
that whatsoever is not expressly, that is, in explicit terms, forbidden in the New Testament scriptures is permitted. Those who hold this view break with the Westminster standards, play into the hands of ritualists, and convert the ordinances of the Presbyterian Church as the maintainers of the same principle have those of the Anglican into propodeutics for the cultists of Rome. There is a third class who hold that, as instrumental music was commanded of God in the Old Testament Church, it is justifiable in that of the New Testament. It is one of the things which God himself has prescribed. This is a very extraordinary ground for Christians to take. It is hard to believe that they would contend for the following positions, logically validated by their view, that every positive enactment of the divine will under the old dispensation passes over unchanged in its authority to the new, that the Christian church is the Jewish temple, or even modeled in conformity with it, that the types of the Old Testament are continued in the new, that what was not warrantable to the Jew in worship of the synagogue is justifiable to the Christian in that of the church, that all the external elements of worship authorized in the Psalms are allowable in the Christian church, for upon that ground animal sacrifices would also be proper, and that the whole nominal church, from the apostles to Thomas Aquinas in 1250 A.D., was mistaken in regard to this matter. Still, carrying with it these consequences as it does, this view is supported by some in the Presbyterian Church. There is a fourth class, and it is believed to be the largest, who hold theoretically to the great principle that whatsoever is not commanded is forbidden, but deny its applicability to instrumental music in connection with the public worship of the Church. They contend that it is one of the circumstances which the confession of faith assigns to the discretionary control of the church. This is probably the chief explanation of the wonderful change that is passing over the Presbyterian church in the sphere of worship. It is to be feared that very few of her ministers and ruling elders have ever thoroughly studied the doctrine of circumstances. How many of them have ever expounded it to the people over whom the Holy Ghost has made them overseers? Nothing is more common than to hear it said that this question is one concerning a circumstantial detail of subordinate value, and that the issue, as one of minor importance, must give way to others of more commanding interest which are pressing upon the Church. This confusion of thought would be surprising were it not so general. What a profound mistake is couched in such remarks. Instead of the circumstances relegated by the confession to the discretion of the Church being circumstantial details of worship, they are not details of worship at all. Instead of their being of the secondary importance, they are indispensable, not as parts of worship, but as natural conditions of its performance. Without them there would be, there could be, no joint worship. The assemblies of the saints would be a dream. The change which is taking place more and more in the worship of the Presbyterian Church is due to the combined influence of the views held by all these classes, but the chief peril results from that maintained by the last which has been named. It is almost inconceivable that the majority of the officers and members of the Presbyterian Church can have abandoned the consecrated principle that a divine warrant is needed for every element which enters into the worship of God's house. Were that so, open apostasy in the department of worship would be acknowledged. But of what avail is the professed acceptance of the principle if its application be refused? How it happened that this principle, which was construed by the Presbyterian reformers and the framers of the Westminster Standards as excluding instrumental music from public worship, 
and was so applied by the Presbyterian Church almost universally for centuries after the Reformation is now interpreted in such a way as to admit this popish innovation into the once simple and evangelical services of that church defies comprehension except upon one supposition. It is that the Presbyterian Church is slackening her grasp upon her ancient testimonies, broadening her practice in conformity with the demands of worldly taste, and is therefore more and more treading the path of defection from the scriptural principles which she professes. The revolution in her practice began in the American church, scarcely beyond the recollection of some now living, and certainly in the Scottish churches within that of those who are not yet fifty years of age. But once begun, what rapid progress it made! What would Gillespie and Calderwood now say? What Chalmers and Candlish, Cunningham and Begg, what Mason, Breckenridge and Thornwell, what would they say were they permitted to rise from their graves and revisit the scenes of their labors, the churches for which they toiled and prayed? It is evident that a great change has taken place. Now either it has been for the better or for the worse. If it be contended that it is for the better, these great men and thousands who thought as they did are pronounced to have been ignorant of the scriptures and the principles of the Presbyterian system. Who are they that will assume such a censorship? Let them by argument prove their claim to this arrogated superiority. If they cannot, and they certainly have not yet done it, let them abandon the unwarrantable attempt to revolutionize the long-standing and scriptural practice of their church, and, ere it to be too late, return to the good old past trodden by their fathers. We are not bound to wear the yoke of human authority, it will be said. No, but these men wore the yoke of divine authority, and we ought to do the same. This is your own human assertion, it will be replied. Yes, but it is an assertion proved by irrefragable argument founded upon the scriptures, the Presbyterian standards, and the history of the true Church of Christ. The burden of proof rests upon those who have made or who countenance this change. They offer proof derived from the principles of nature and from human taste. What argument from Scripture is presented is such as would make us turn Jews and worship at the temple. It would not even convert us into Jews who worshipped at the synagogue. It is an argument which would take the Christian church over the ruins of the synagogue back to the temple and in effect reenact the madness of Julian by an attempt to construct again the abrogated institute. But whatever may be the want of satisfactory argument to ground this widespread and astounding defection from the old, conservative position of the Presbyterian Church, the mournful fact is patent that the congregations which that church embraces are more and more succumbing to, the, to its baneful influence. The ministers who are opposed to the unscriptural movement are, many of them at least, indisposed to throw themselves into opposition to its onward rush. They are unwilling to make an issue with their people upon this question. They are reluctant to characterize the employment of instrumental music in public worship as a sin. But a sin it is, if there be any force in the argument which opposes it. The people ought to be taught that in using it they rebel against the law of Christ their King. It bodes ill for the Church that this subject is now so often treated in a flippant and even jocular manner. The question of the use of instrumental music in the public worship of God's house is, for example, sometimes placed upon the same foot with that in regard to the use of tobacco. Both questions are scouted as equally illegitimate and equally trivial. Is tobacco ever mentioned in the Word of God? Is it forgotten that a private habit of an individual is vastly different thing 
from an action which modifies the public solemn singing of God's praise by a congregation of professed worshippers? Such levity partakes of profanity. It makes a mock of holy things. The indulgence of this temper by our church courts will betoken the departure of our glory. It is not less than shocking to suppose that the church can make light of a subject about which God's jealousy has smoked and his anger has broken out into a consuming fire. If she will employ instruments of music, let her at least refrain from fiddling while many of her children are mourning over what they feel to be the corruption of her worship and the decay of her spirituality. Nero fiddled while Rome was burning, and Belshazzar was desecrating the vessels of God's sanctuary in the midst of revelry while the mystic hand wrote on the wall of his palace the sentence of doom. Those of us who protest against this revolution in Presbyterian worship are by some pitied, by others ridiculed, and by others still denounced as fanatics. If we are, we share the company of an innumerable host of fanatics extending from the day of Pentecost to the middle of the 19th century. We refuse not to be classed, although consciously unworthy of the honor, with apostles, martyrs, and reformers. But neither were they mad, nor are we. We speak the words of truth and soberness. Mindful of the apostolic injunction, prove all things. We submit arguments derived from Scripture, from the formularies of our Church, and from the consensus of Christ's people, and respectfully invoke for them the intention of our brethren. We call upon them to examine these arguments, and either disprove or adopt them. But should they be dismissed without notice, and our faithful remonstrances be unheeded, we humbly but earnestly warn the Church of the evil and bitter consequences which will, we verily believe, be entailed by that corruption of public worship, which has been pointed out, and against it, in the name of the framers of our venerable standards, in the name of the reformers, divines, martyrs of the Presbyterian Church, in the name of Christ's true witnesses in the centuries of the past, in the name of the inspired apostles, and above all, in the name of our glorious King and Head, we erect our solemn protest. End of chapter 7 and end of book. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog and remember that John Calvin in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.